Our sermon text today is Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Well, we're glad you're joining us virtually. Uh, we are disappointed that we can't be in service together and we recognize that the public worship uh, that we do together is really irreplaceable uh, but during these next few weeks uh, we are thankful for the technology that allows us to continue to have some semblance of shared church life uh, the text that was just read from psalm 110 is fitting for this week this past week on january 6th was epiphany the day where we recognize when the wise men come to christ and they recognize in him the king of all the world and he is proclaimed by those wise men as king of all nations. And so this psalm is fitting for that. In fact, this psalm is used more in the New Testament than any other passage from the Old Testament. And it is a psalm that is, like all of the psalms, all about Christ. Luther called it the main psalm to deal with our dear Lord Jesus Christ. If you just look at the structure of the psalm before we jump into it, I'll just point it out quickly. If you notice in verse 1, you'll see the Lord speaking and then also in verse 4. It's those two verses, verses 1 and 4, that set the sort of two-part structure for this psalm. So we've got the Lord speaking in verse 1 and then again in verse 2, marking the two sections. Now, you probably will notice a problem presented by the text immediately in verse 1. In verse 1, we read, the Lord says to my Lord, which is important because we see this inner dialogue between God the Father and God the Son, but sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And right there is the problem, until I make your enemies your footstool. The problem is that enemies still exist. Jesus's kingship, while he's been declared king and recognized as king, has not been finalized here in this world. Even though he sits at the right hand of the Father, even though he sits on his throne, this world remains in the grip of Satan, it remains broken, it remains under the corruption of sin, Satan, and death. Good illustration of this uh, comes from Transparency International. They're a nonprofit group that seeks to expose corruption in the world by giving a voice to those who suffer under the weight of corruption. And they maintain what is known as a corruption index, which is really just a map of the world ranking each country with a color according to its level of corruption. So you can see a large picture here of the map of the world and how they've ranked it. Dark red indicates the highest level of corruption. 
In 2016, Transparency International ranked Somalia the most corrupt country in the world. Well, Somalia is a country on the horn of Africa, so it jets out on the far right side of the African continent, and it is in deep red there on the picture. Some of you may recall the history in the early 1990s. The major factor was this failed partnership between Somalia and Somaliland, leading to this devastating civil war in 1991. And it, it gained some international attention, and, and it was also an international ethical problem. And I can't comment on all of the political issues, but just consider the devastation that was experienced there. The dictator of Somalia let loose a relentless bombing campaign against Somaliland, destroying over 90% of the cities. Uh, it's just one example in one major city of about 70,000 people. When the bombing was completed, there were only seven homes with roofs still on them. Just seven homes still having a roof. In 1992, 350,000 Somalis died of disease and starvation. 350,000 people in one year. Now I want to show you a picture, but before I do, I have to warn you that it is graphic. Uh, it, it's, it's a graphic image, so if these sort of things are disturbing, I, I would encourage you to turn away. Uh, but in this picture, you'll see an image that is common, all too common for that period in Somalia, uh, the history of Somalia. Uh, you have people who are devastated by starvation and the subsequent disease that goes with uh, the poor living conditions. And so when we talk about corruption in the world, this is the sort of image that comes to mind. And immediately when we think about this psalm and we talk about a king being on his throne and all the nations recognizing this king, we're pressed with this question. If that is the case, how can we say Jesus is on the throne if all of these terrible things are happening in our world? How can we read and pray and sing a psalm like this if such things are happening around our world? What sort of hope is there in the face of such hopeless images, in the face of such hopeless situations? What does it even mean to say Jesus is on the throne when this is the reality of the world we live in? And so in verse 1, when we hear, until I make your enemies a footstool, we have the sense of being caught between time, that there is a, a project that is ongoing in God's plan for this world, but it has not been completed. Now, I want to suggest three ways that this psalm still points us to the hope of Jesus' kingship. Three ways that this psalm points us to hope in Jesus' kingship. The very first of these is this. The promise is certain. The promise is certain. Notice again in verse 1. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So there is this certainty about this. Until God acts to do this. Until God carries out what he promised to do. While it may be an ongoing project, it is certain and there's no doubt that it will happen. We see it in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change 
his mind. Again, absolutely certain. Or, or notice all the future verbs throughout the, the passage. Verse 5, the Lord will shatter kings. Verse 6, the Lord will execute judgment. Verse 7, this king will lift up his head, which means he will be victorious. This, this language of drinking from the book and then lifting up his head carries the idea of finding refreshment after a battle. And we know from the psalm that the Lord will do all of these things. Now, on what basis can we count on these words to be true? In other words, what is the basis of our certainty? Well, the basis of our certainty as Christians is the empty grave. The basis of our certainty as Christians is the fact that Jesus is alive and dead. If Jesus did not rise, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we have no hope, and in fact, we ought to be pitied. But if Jesus is alive, then we can be certain he will come again. So the question that we can put to ourselves is, does the reality of Christ being alive make a difference in the way we live today? Does that give us the assurance to carry on in this life? That, that Gaither modern hymn says it this way, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. See, it's on the basis of the empty grave that gives us the assurance to move on. And it is this certainty that drove the early disciples to give their lives away. It is this certainty that is sustaining on this very day our brothers and sisters all around the world. A few years ago, China was under uh, much persecution, and that continues today. But Christianity has been exploding in China in the past years. And, and in the last years, what we've seen is the Chinese government responding with a heavy hand by arresting Christians, by shutting down house churches. One pastor who was arrested in December of 2018 actually had prepared a statement for the moment when he was arrested because he knew it was not a matter of if, but when. And in the letter he wrote these words, as a pastor of a Christian church, I must denounce this wickedness openly and severely. The calling that I have received requires me to use nonviolent methods to disobey those human laws that disobey the Bible and God. Here's a man who was willing to go to prison because he recognized the certainty of the promises and the hope of the empty grave. Number two, the priest is forever. The priest is forever. So we have this language of a king, but we also have the language of a priest. Notice verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest, speaking to this, this other Lord here. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now you may recall Melchizedek is this mysterious figure from the Old Testament. We meet him in the book of Genesis and he almost appears out of nowhere. And we know very little about him. But the New Testament often talks about the importance of Melchizedek as a priest and Christ as the ultimate fulfillment of who Melchizedek is. 
And in the Old Testament, when we meet Melchizedek, he is not only a priest, but he's a king. And that's unique because priests and kings aren't typically the same person. They're typically separate offices. A priest king, though, not only rules, but he serves. And so Jesus acts in both capacities. He acts as our priest when he dies in our place, doing once for all what we could never do. Our sins, our guilt, all of that is forgiven, not on the basis of our good works, not even on the basis of our remorse, but on the basis of his priestly sacrifice. And more than that, we are set free. The cords of hell that enslaved us no longer do enslave us. They no longer hold us. They are loosed. We are awakened from death and made alive to spiritual things. What the Bible calls the new birth or being born again or to use the theological term, regeneration. And what does it mean to be made alive? To be made alive means that our corrupt nature is being put to death and our eyes are opened to the things of God. Our eyes are open to spiritual realities that we would be blind to otherwise. Now, as we hear about stories like Somalia or any story that uh, we find to be uh, indicative of corruption or brokenness in our world, often we feel the anger and the rage that is expected in response to those stories. We always express our outrage at such extreme stories. How could anyone possibly be so cruel? How could anyone do such terrible things? But we really shouldn't be surprised. The cruelty of the world comes from the same place in our heart that causes us to, say, refuse forgiveness to a family member or friend, that causes us to ridicule or, or simply overlook the poor and the suffering that causes us to despise the mentally ill. Such corruption shouldn't surprise us because if we look in the mirror long enough, we'll find that the same sort of corruption is actually staring back at us. Until we feel the full weight of that, that the problem is not out there, but the problem lies in here, until we feel the full weight of that, we won't understand the announcement of the gospel, the good news of the gospel. In fact, it will never be really good news. To be made alive means then to see things differently, to see the reality of who we are and who God is. That's because the Spirit of God is poured out on us, and that is what opens our eyes. For Jesus to be our priest king means we are cleansed, and now we can receive the very Spirit of God to dwell in us, that means we have a new nature, allowing us to do good works for the glory of God. This is all made possible because Jesus is at the right hand of God. This is precisely what we see all throughout Scripture. For example, in Ephesians 2, when Paul talks about being raised from the dead, he's talking about the reality of the spiritual birth we see it in Ezekiel 37 in this beautiful metaphor of a valley of dry bones that we see raised by the Lord, and then he puts his own spirit in them. Furthermore, Jesus being a priest forever means that right now, right now, this very moment, he stands in heaven interceding for us who depend on him. Our sin and our shame does not condemn us. It does not have the final word. 
Our guilt does not have the final say either. Satan has no accusations to make against us. We don't rely on our good works. We don't rely on how sorry we feel or how remorseful we are. The priest intercedes and pleads for us every day, even when we don't know how to do it ourselves. And guess what? The priest always finds favor before his father. The hymn before the throne of God puts it this way. It's one of my favorites. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No one can cast us out when we are in Christ. That is the beauty of the gospel. That is the beauty of having a forever priest after the order of Melchizedek who will always serve as our great high priest. And when our guilt and shame threaten to crush us, we must look to Jesus, our eternal priest, and we will not be disappointed. The final point from this psalm that I want to make is the king is coming. Now, I know the first point was the promises are certain, so here we, what I have in mind is more the response to the king coming. We already know about the certainty, but now what about the response? The response to the certainty, the response to the identity of the king is the response of faith or the response of repentance and faith. When scripture calls us to respond to the gospel or to the good news of Jesus. It tells us again and again and again to repent and believe or to repent and trust, to repent and have faith. That means that we turn from other kings, we turn from other kingdoms, and turn to the coming king. We put our hope and our trust in him. This is why good works always follow up on genuine faith. Because genuine faith is nothing less than trust and dependence. And because it is real trust and real dependence, then these good works are the natural response to those of us who have seen who Jesus is. The king calls us to live in the values of his kingdom now. In the face of darkness... And in the face of hopelessness, we live the values of light and hopefulness. This is why Jesus says things like, when someone strikes you on the cheek, don't retaliate, but offer them the other cheek. Or why the New Testament letters repeatedly say, don't repay evil for evil. These aren't ways to earn salvation but they are alternative ways to live in this world. They are alternative ways to live in a broken world, and they are representative of God's kingdom and what life in God's kingdom looks like. They are ways for us to experience God's kingdom now because they reflect the values of God's kingdom. Notice that in verses 5 and 6, King, Just, King Jesus will bring justice to the world. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. That's really powerful language that's almost shocking to us, but gets at this idea that the power structures in this world will crumble as the Lord executes the right thing for this world. Verse 6, he will execute judgment among the nations, 
filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. So all of this, in this really strong language, captures this idea of what it means for a broken world to be put right, for God's righteousness to fill all of creation. So he will set the wrongs right. Injustices and corruptions will not prevail. They will not be dismissed or forgotten. They will be dealt with. But that also means that we must live justly and righteously now in order to reflect the kingdom and to learn to live in the kingdom. As Paul says in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven from whence we wait a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So our citizenship is not a future reality. It is a present reality in that it is currently in the kingdom of God or heaven. Now this talk of the king coming to execute judgment among the nations, as I've said, is shocking, but it's also fearful. But not only is it fearful, it's incredibly hopeful. It just depends on our response here. It is fearful for those who would not embrace the king, for those who refuse to embrace the king, for those who have a vested interest in the way things are. It is fearful language. Those who insist on living the way they've always lived, reaching for the good life as our world defines it, will still be confronted by the one true king. And for that reason, it is a message that carries great urgency. It is also fearful for those who call themselves Christians but have no intentions of following Jesus. Because as Jesus says time and time again, we are called not only to hear his word but to be obedient to his word. Or as he says in John chapter 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Again, the response to faith, the response to this king is turned out in how we live our lives. It is not what saves us, but it is the reciprocal action of God's grace to us. And this language is fearful for those who have other kings and other allegiances. So it is paramount that we recognize our king as Jesus and our allegiance to his kingdom. Because the Lord will shatter false kings. He will destroy those who oppose him. And again, there is great urgency here. We must repent and embrace the king because he is coming. And for those who do embrace the king, nothing could be more hopeful. As we think about the corruption in a place like Somalia, as we think about the horrible things that happen every day to ordinary people who didn't expect it, we realize that this world is not our home. This world is not the way it is supposed to be. And all the suffering and pain and the evil only serves to remind us that this is not how it was created to be. The world is not governed by the king yet. The king is officially the king, but not everyone recognizes it as such. There is still the final death throes, as it were. But the king is coming, and we must not lose hope. It won't be long. And so in the meantime, we keep doing the king's work, even in the face of pain and sorrow and adversity, because that work will not be lost. 
It will be seen by the king. It will be recognized by the king. Every good deed, every effort at righteousness and justice, every concern for the least of these, every effort toward holiness will be an area where the returning king will smile and say, my people have been faithful here. May we be faithful here at Monument Heights. And let us watch wide awake for the true king is coming. Let me pray for us as we begin to conclude our service. Lord, we are so incredibly grateful for the hope that we have in Christ. And I pray that you would give us eyes to see that while this world is severely broken and while terrible things happen, I pray that you would help us to see the hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus. Lord, we do want to pray for those in our congregation who are suffering, who are sick, who are hurting, who are mourning. We pray that you would be present with them and that you would impress these very truths, the hope of the gospel, on their hearts. I pray that they would find great relief and joy in peace and hope in believing what Christ has done. And Lord, I pray over these next few weeks while our normal activities are on this temporary suspension and while we cannot gather together in person, Lord, I pray that you would still be pleased to work in our hearts, to stir our affections to love you and to seek to be more faithful to you. We ask all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen.